the geometry of a bare skull, I don't think this is how, how God intended them to be, but it's how it ended up. It is very hard to shoot a bear in the face and get that bullet to enter its brain. You know, their their skull is definitely built in a way with with the muscles that are around their face and the tight sinew that are in those muscles and then the shape of the skull after that. It's really easy for a projectile to impact that and then deflect around it. And I have yet to see a bear get knocked unconscious by anything. I've seen it happen to deer. I've seen it happen to elk. I've never seen a bear get knocked out. I have seen bullets hit them in the head and not kill them, even rifle bullets. I've seen it with with a thirty thirty. Mm. So, they have a very aerodynamic shape yeah. to, from the forward portion, and it's, right. uh, it's thick too. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. A hot drink can become cool in two primary ways, through conduction and convection. Conduction occurs when two objects touch each other. Imagine holding a piece of ice. Before long, your fingers are cold and the ice begins to melt. That's conduction. Convection occurs when a gas or liquid moves from being different temperatures. When you heat water over a stove, the warm water moves up and the cool water moves down. That's what you're seeing when water boils, and that's convection. A stainless vacuum bottle prevents conduction from occurring by creating a void between the walls of the bottle, thermos, or cup and the outside air. It prevents convection by keeping all the liquid inside at the same temperature. That's how a Stanley product keeps your cold drink cold and your hot drink hot. And they've been doing it for 110 years. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Stanley 1913. And you can check out their new and classic line of products at Stanley1913.com. Brother and I uh, shot it with handguns and it was kind of a, got real Western real fast. It sounds Western. Anytime you're talking about bears and it's, my brother and I shot it with handguns. That <laughs> yeah. sounds like there's the rest of the story. Yeah, it was, uh, we weren't really bear hunting. We were up looking for, uh, scouting for elk and it was in September. Had a bear license and came upon uh, two bears and uh, it happened, it was raining super dense, walked right into them and it all took place at um, probably about 15 feet. And it was uh, just a nasty little ravine and raining hard enough that it covered our scent. And, and we, we heard him uh, tearing apart a log and got a good locate on him, just started sneaking in. And then it all happened. It was just right there. Wow. So what happened? So um, I, I'm carrying a six point um, like uh, deadhead and I'd had a, uh, a 35 Remington and a contender. And I had a 45 automatic as well. So the 45 was in a holster and the 35 was in my hands. And my brother took the 35 from me and he put it in his holster, put his 44 in his hands. And so we weren't, uh, there was no expectation that we were going to find these bears. It was just, just a, a half-hearted attempt. So you're looking for a bear. Yeah. When we heard him, uh, we heard it ripping apart a log and that's what we assumed it yeah. was. Uh, you know, there was no, we were probably 
you know, 80 yards off or something. When, and so we just assume that there's no way a bear is going to sit around and let us walk in that close. Yeah. And I come up to a, a log that was a smaller log, but it was a down log and uh, it was probably, you know, waist high or so. And I remember looking down at it thinking, am I going to like scissor kick over this? Am I going to, you know, put the, <laughs> put the elk rack down? What am I going to do? And uh, just then there's a muzzle flash right at my face and Sam had saw the bear and he punched it in the eyebrow, the right eyebrow, but it didn't go through the brain cavity and he got a headshot on it. And then um, I, I dropped the elk rack, um, reached back, pulled out the 45 and my hands wouldn't move. It was just, everything was, was just so slow. And I remember being upset with myself that I couldn't get this 45 up and uh, he shot um, three more times total. And I think he got another shot or two off before my 45 came out and I picked up the front sight, shot, watched the slide kind of laxadaisically come back and go forward and shot again. And I remember the shells just being just a, inches apart as they flew through the air and it was, they were just kind of floating. And then I realized that it was enough adrenaline that there was just time delay and, uh, put a, um, Sam put new 44s in his gun and I slid a different magazine in and walked up to it. And the bear was, it was just feet from us at that point. And so I went down and I was going to poke it in the eyeball with, with the, uh, 45 when I did it blinked on it. Right. And, um, the head started coming up and I pushed my hand on top of the head and Sam screwed the barrel of his 44 on the back of my hand. Um, I just was going to sprawl out and get, get my feet away from the bear cause I didn't want to get pulled under it. And, um, when I pushed his, um, his head down, he coughed and, uh, some blood and brain matter came out of its nose and, um, Sam looked at me and I remember that, like these big eyes that he thought he was, he was, you know, he was close to shoot me in the, in the hand. Right. And, uh, and the thing was dead, but it was, um, it, it happened. I mean, we shouldn't have been on it that fast. We should have given it a second, all that stuff, but he hit it. Um, one of his shots missed, um, went high over the shoulder and he kind of was riding the recoil up with the 44. It looked like, but he got one that busted the shoulder, one that went through and, and lodged, um, on the far side of the hide. And I got two in the rib cage and I had 45s with 230 grain shocks, and they only penetrated to the first lung. Like, uh, and I remember when we cut up the bear, I was so disappointed that, and they, they mushroomed out like they're supposed to and everything, but they only went in 10 inches and it was just, um, super disappointing to see that, uh, um, you know, at that point in time, I'm 20 years old and I believe that the, um, that a 45 is, you know, doesn't kill a man. It also kills his soul and that, that hydroshocks were the best thing going and just, uh, seeing the realities of it. It was disappointing. That's an incredible story. We're out here in the wilderness. We took jet boats into spring bear camp. This, uh, this podcast for those who have been following it all along. Thank you so much. Uh, this podcast was, was born at bear camp in a wilderness that, that jet boats took us into. And it's been a tradition to, to do a show out here ever since we spotted bears here the first day we spotted, uh, the same bear again yesterday. We set up to take a shot on it. It was a long shot and we only had about an hour of light left and it would have taken us more than an hour to get to it. So this morning we're sitting around talking about the plan for how we're going to get up to this bear for you. Joshua to to make this shot on him 
And my advice was don't make too precise of a plan for how you're going to climb the hill because there's going to be rims, there's going to be brush, there's going to be things that you can't see from the bottom. And while I had a plan for how this podcast was going to go, um, I made too precise of a plan for how I was going to climb this hill. So now we're going in a little bit different direction, and I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, folks, today we have with us Mr. Weston Rogers. How you doing, Weston? Doing well, thank you. Your second time on the show? Yes, sir. Yeah. You were there for uh, episode two, I believe. Yeah, two or three. Yeah, right back in the beginning. Dr. Rogers is somewhere around camp today. Yep, we're going to have Doc Rog on a little <laughs> bit later on. He's going to be up to bat. Uh and then Joshua Mankey, uh, tell me a little bit about who you are. Well, recently um, I got involved in ballistics and it seems like that's how people know me anymore. Yeah. And so I'm the founder of G9. What we, is G9? We, uh, it's an ammunition company that designs projectiles, basically. We do load them and everything, but I think at the core of what we do is intellectual property. So it's the designs that makes G9 G9. We have um, pistol bullets that uh, do not expand, but use shape to uh, to create um, that stopping power. Our rifle bullets are unique because most rifle bullets use soft centers to open up, and ours uses a hard center. Um, on the on the LE side and the military side, we're using um, hardened uh, tool steel and tungsten, and so and we get we get expansion even with a hard center, and so it's a different uh, a new design on the market. Right. So do you want to be soft core? Or do you want to be hardcore? <laughs> I don't know. If you drink Mountain Dew, you want to be hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, folks, uh, Joshua is, uh, is the most intelligent ballistician I've ever, um, had the pleasure of speaking with, um, up to including the folks that I worked with, uh, at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds in Maryland, where, you know, we were developing, uh, new rounds for the M1A1 Abrams tank for the USMC. Rest in peace. Joshua, you were telling me this morning that... Your, your teachers didn't have a lot of faith in you in school, not a lot of encouragement. Didn't seem like you were going to be voted most likely uh, to be conducting advanced physics and uh, be the owner of a company that has lots of intellectual property and is constantly filing new patents. And I mean, are you, are you more of an inventor? Are you more of a ballistician? Are you an entrepreneur? Like... I, I think at the center of it, I'm definitely the inventor and, and I got to keep that in check because that might be as much a personality mm. as a, um, as a position. And, and so at the company, I fit the role of the visionary. Yeah. And so I see what we can do. And so on the entrepreneur side, um, I definitely need those that will come back and, um, and finish the projects I start and also tell me, wait on this one. For six months and right. so having those uh the gas pedal and the brakes i'm definitely uh the gas pedal but the um as far as how i got into it and how i started this it tell, was tell me a little bit about about what those teachers said to you because i i hope that some of them will listen to this sure my uh my fifth grade teacher to encourage me said that there's a lot of smart people in the world there's doctors, there's lawyers, and there's there's important people, and they're going to need people to uh, to take out the trashes and sweep the floors, and I'm going to find my place in this world. 
And that was the encouragement was that, um, that not everybody had to be smart to get it done. Right. And I don't want anybody to take this to say like, oh, your, your job's to take out the trash. You're not smart. That ain't it. No, that ain't it at all. So this, this teacher's wrong on every level. Like I, I couldn't be honestly more upset with this person. And I dealt with a lot of the same stuff. Um, you know, I, I had teachers, I had a, a high school counselor tell me, you know, college isn't for everybody. And uh, I had another one say, well, maybe you should just join the military as if that was the, the lowest hanging fruit that somebody could possibly do. Uh, just incredible, you know, incredible how discouraging some of these people can be. But for the right person, that discouragement can be rocket fuel. And I think that depends on the, the support that you're getting in the rest of your life and, uh, and just who you are and what, what kind of, what kind of metal you're made of, you know, sure. or do you have a, a gooey lead center or, uh, is it tool steel? So folks, uh, we're going to get into, um, some pretty advanced ballistics today. Uh, but let's start out with talking about, um, Weston, maybe you could define for us what ballistics is or what ballistics are. I've been battling with myself about how to even ask that question. Um, ballistics would be anything including, um, I guess, but not limited to something that flies through the air and um, causes a terminal effect. Um, What's a terminal effect? An impact with the target. Okay. Um, you know, and so there's a diff- couple different aspects of ballistics. You've got terminal ballistics, you know, what the wounding is like, what happens at the target. Yep. You know, you've got uh, external ballistics, what's happening in the air during flight. And, um, and then you've got internal ballistics, you know, the pressure, what's going on inside the gun, um, you know, the properties that make the gun function well or not. Um, and it's our job at G9 to take these, these designs and make sure that they not only perform in one or two of those categories, they have to, it's a complete package always. Yeah. I, I kind of think of it as like uh, a method for understanding uh, or being able to predict what's going to happen to an object as it's moving through the air. And there's lots of forces that, that occur. And so we're, we're talking specifically about bullets here and we're going to, we're going to kind of gloss over internal ballistics, but just real quickly, Joshua, like from the, from the firing pin striking the primer, you know, take us through, you know, just, you know, as, as briefly as it makes sense to you, what happens next? Sure. When the, uh, the gunpowder's ignited, there's a few things that we, we look for there is, is how that gunpowder burns and how that ignition takes place. And so once it starts to expand, uh, there's debate on, um, on whether it's expansive gases or what's really going on inside there. But from there, you start pushing on the back of that bullet and it makes um, a small movement, uh, usually about a 32nd of an inch or so. And then it engages the, the grooves in the barrel. And so you start cutting into that bullet with these, uh, you can think of them like little railroad tracks that's going to direct that bullet down the barrel to give it a, a spin so that it stabilizes in flight. And so once it does that, that's usually where the pressure occurs. And when we look at these, um, these graphs and these pressure curves that we get off of the equipment there, you think that um, the, the pressure would have to peak at maybe 10 inches down the barrel or 16 inches down the barrel based on these graphs. But the, um, the pressure peaks as those grooves are cutting through the, the bullet. And then it takes off. Um, that takes quite a bit of time as far as how much time the bullet's in the barrel. 
uh, once it it's, uh, gets the groove cut, it really pushes it then. And, and that's where you get your speed. And we're talking with a rifle, we're roughly uh, three times the speed of sound when it, when it exits. And so we're going from standing still to that. There's a lot of violence that occurs. This, the, the casing, the brass shell will swell and cling to the chamber. And that's something that, that has to happen because if it doesn't uh, grip the inside of the chamber, you put a lot of, of pressure back right. on the gun. That's where guns can, can fail and explode. And so some of the, um, there's, there's a lot of uh, things to consider on the inside going in there. And so the types of powder you use, how quickly they ignite or how, how energetic they are. Um, those are the things that you look at and then you have to be able to do this. So that powder has to like that bullet weight, um, and that reaction to where it does it the same exact way every time, because if we can't get that done the same way, every time we're not going to get that same velocity, which is kind of the first, um, element of how things are going to fly through the air. Because, um, I would, I would argue that velocity is the foundation that you start measuring stuff on. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You you did mention something that that I've been trying to wrap my mind around, which is that once this powder, this gunpowder, gets ignited um, and starts expanding, it's it, it's in a solid state as gunpowder. And then what we talk about is that gunpowder turning into a gas that is rapidly expanding, and that expansion is what pushes the bullet down the barrel. You mentioned something about plasma. I don't know what plasma is. So it's a state of matter, and you have um, you have solid liquids and gases in plasma. And so for the that little jump that we talked about is called free bore. Yeah. And so it's where all the all the grooves have been taken out of the barrel, and the and the bullet just has a little bit of travel before it starts to engrave into the lands and grooves. And and so at that point, I believe during the free bore. Um, what's touching the back of the bullet is probably a solid. And so we've had expansion near the primer. The, and this is mostly what we're talking about here is a bottlenecked rifle cartridge. So lots of powder in a, in a long column. Um, I believe that the powder gets compressed on the back of the bullet and, and it's a solid at that state. Someplace during that engraving process, um, that turns to plasma. And I think where the horsepower is done, where the work is done, what's actually touching the back of the bullet is plasma. And I think that's a critical thing. By the time it, um, it exits the barrel, uh, you probably do have uh, mostly gases. And, and the instant that the bullet starts to relieve the pressure in there, as soon as it's exited the barrel and that pressure starts to go down, um, I think it is uh, at that point in time, mostly gases. You do have some solids that there's uh, unburned powder will, will fly out the end of the barrel. And so this, um, this chemistry and this mix, it's not as easy as everyone thinks that it's just expansive gases. Um, and so what we've seen in that is that um, the way that some of our bullets react uh, to the back there is that it's reacting with plasma. That's really cool. Um, okay. So that's very interesting. Weston um, is the one who introduced me to 2G9 products via the, uh, the 10 millimeter Woodsman. And I'll just give a, a brief, brief anecdote on my experience with that bullet. Um, I thought it looked goofy. And then I shot it. And I was like, wow, it sh- shoots really good. I was able to hit this little steel coyote target 
at 100 yards mm-hmm. um, on my rifle range about any time I felt like it. And I didn't have to hold above the coyote. You know, I, I put my red dot on this back and I hit it. I was like, what is happening? You know, this is sorcery. It's going way faster. It's like, okay, well, it's light and it's shaped funny, so it's going faster. Um, but in the realm of pistol bullets, I was like, heavier is better. Heavier is better. Semi-wad cutter. Like, this is the move for everything. And that was the literature that I'd read. Um, I didn't have any personal experience to, to say otherwise. And then I started looking at your guys' ballistic gel tests. It's like, what's going on? Like, this thing is penetrating deeper got into it with Weston more and more and was realizing that something very, very different was occurring with this pistol bullet. And I went ahead and took it elk hunting. And last year I shot a, you know, five point bull elk with a 10 mil at 30 yards. And he died quicker than an elk that we shot in the same place two days later with a 277 fury, um, with, which was a 150 grain bullet doing you know 2800 feet per second at, at the muzzle so something really interesting is occurring with that bullet weston can you talk to me a little bit about like what the woodsman does as far as fluid transfer and then i'd love after that to get into how it was born so the woodsman round works on fluid transfer to create wounding um you know your traditional like that 277 fury is going to be a a cup and core bullet probably, um, you know, it's going to expand, it's going to cause, you know, an initial amount of force, um, you know, that, that does result in some temporary wounding. Cup and core. It was a, it was a 150 grain, um, nozzle or acubon, but I think stuff like cup and core, that's not, uh, not stuff that everybody knows. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a lead based bullet that's jacketed with copper. Okay. And, um, and that bullet's going to, you know, have some effect on target on the initial impact. There's a lot of energy there. Um, however, most of the wounding is basically going to be what the diameter of what that bullet expands to drags across um, tissue. And so it's going to cut what it hits. Um, and, and it's going to be a dragging cut. It's not going to be a, a, a slicing cut. And like is speed a part of that? Because it, it doesn't seem like that. Like when I shoot something with, with a rifle bullet, there seems to be an area around that rifle bullet, mm-hmm. especially as it's, as it's still going fast, that that is wounded. Yep, um, and, and so that's really more fluid transfer than it is um, than anything else. But it's limited to that that short area, right. you know, uh, because that energy is dissipated so quickly because it's doing what it's designed to do. It's opening up, yeah. But then it's basically creating a parachute for itself. Right. Whereas the woodsman um, features, you know, it comes to a point has a parabolic curve outward. It uh, looks like a boob. It it <laughs> does. It looks like a like a like a nipple. Yeah. Um and. Uh, it, so that the face of that might have been my initial appeal. (laughs) 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 Um, That curve basically is forcing fluid out at um, a speed much greater than it would were an FMJ or something else like that. What's an FMJ? A full metal jacket round or a, you know, um, hard cast um, lead projectile, which has become pretty much the other favorite um, on the market. Which is really old technology. And it was, um, it was championed by some fantastic gun riders back in the mm-hmm. day that, that really liked a semi-wad cutter. And I think that they liked a semi-wad cutter for the right reasons. But people rested a little bit on what a bullet should be doing after that. And the next thing that we saw were 
were different versions of hollow points, mm-hmm. but never a different version of a solid that was doing better work. Okay, Joshua, you get a phone call uh, at uh, at a late hour, right? Yeah. So the um, we had taken that design, and I was thinking it was going to make a good uh, subsonic round to go through suppressors. And so some suppressors have different internal geometries and a fluted bullet doesn't always, um, agree with those geometries. So, so we're trying to make something accurate. And so through testing the thing over penetrated, so it got put on the shelf for, uh, for a couple years, I think. And we get a phone call. I get a phone call, uh, that they needed, uh, a round to shoot polar bears with. And so, I immediately go to thinking that this is one of my friends calling me. And, and somebody's um, got an accent, yeah, right? This, yeah, this has this is, all the workings of a prank call. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and so then I, I just trying to figure out what's going on. I said, sure. Uh, do you want to, you know, 300 Win Mag, 375 H&H, what are you looking for? Nine millimeter. I'm like, okay, nine millimeter for polar bears. That makes sense. And um, they said that they have been doing it with, uh, with tens and they had uh, some muskox and um, and bears and that they had poor results that they weren't getting, uh, penetration with the Glock, um, 20 and that they had hollow points. It was what they were using and that they had some failures. So, um, it got a little more interesting then. And so took down what they were looking for. Um, and, uh, went back to sleep in the morning, checked the phone number and it was an international number and it was a legit deal. And that what they were wanting was they wanted something in a, in a SIG 320 that they could um, not weigh a guy down with a rifle because he was going to be on skis and, and they had to, they had to limit weight, but there was a concern uh, with the wildlife. And so, yeah. and then eight days later um, we kind of went back to that shape, revamped it, uh, put it up to pressure in a nine millimeter and we landed on a, 124 grain nine millimeter that got uh, roughly 34 to 36 inches of penetration in gel, and it got a good wound cavity for most that distance. And so it was a that parabolic curve. If you if you think about it, most bullets are shaped like the backside of a spoon, and if you put a backside of the spoon underneath a faucet, um, the water is going to kind of peel off of it in a very like gentle fashion. If you flip the spoon over and you have the curves out. Um, water splashes all over, you know, and, and there's, there's more, um, more dispersion there. And that's what we're doing with that curve is we're trying to get the, the fluid to cast off at a, at a great velocity going sideways to enlarge a wound. So if I think about this from, from this perspective, if I'm going to have a spoon with a, with a curved, with the belly up and I pour a fluid over it, like, like they do with Guinness. Like th- that's how you pour a really nice Guinness is over, you know, the, the bottom of the spoon. That feels like it would penetrate much, much better. It, you know, if I flip that spoon around and now we're splashing, it seems like that spoon would stop immediately as soon as it hits something. So how is it that, that the woodsman is able to throw that fluid off to the side and continue penetrating on par with, you know, those other, you know, semi-wad cutter, really heavy lead cast solids. I'd look at the shape of um, one of the snow plows on, on, a, on a train in, you know, really snowy areas, okay. Wyoming, Colorado, um, Montana. You know, the, that's a, 
very similar parabolic curve. And, um, and when those things are trucking through deep snow, um, that snow's flying laterally. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, it's making room for the energy, but you know, this, the momentum that's behind the projectile to continue. Okay. That makes a lot of visual sense actually. So because it's throwing those materials out of the way, it's creating space for the rest of the projectile to continue forward. And um, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, the frontal area is, is going to be lower um, pounds per, or higher pounds per square inch um, on that media that it's going through. Okay. Um, versus a, a flat nose uh, or something like that. So we've really come full circle from, you know, this story that you started with with your brother and, you know, having a shot to the face of a bear at 15 feet and the bullet doesn't penetrate the skull. Now, the, the geometry of a bear skull... I don't think this is how, how God intended them to be, but it's how it ended up. It is very hard to shoot a bear in the face and get that bullet to enter its brain. You know, their their skull is definitely built in a way with with the muscles that are around their face and the tight sinew that are in those muscles and then the shape of the skull after that. It's really easy for a projectile to impact that and then deflect around it. And I have yet to see a bear get knocked unconscious by anything. I've seen it happen to deer. I've seen it happen to elk. I've never seen a bear get knocked out. I have seen bullets hit them in the head and not kill them, even rifle bullets. I've seen it with with a thirty thirty. Mm. So they have a very aerodynamic shape, yeah, to, from the forward portion, and it's right. uh, it's thick too, like yeah. So now you you started with this problem that you know you and your brother made it through, but could have gone either way. And, you know, now you've got a call from a foreign military that has a real problem. Like they have animals that, that can and, and will kill them. You know, there's, there's an island in Norway. Um, you know, I used to live in Norway. There's an island there. Norway is not a very gun-friendly country. Their police don't even carry guns. Uh, you are not allowed to leave town without a gun. It is illegal for you to leave town without a gun, or at least it was at that time. And the reason was polar bears. It's a real problem. Polar bears being the bear that is most known for uh, for hunting people. Other bears will, will kill people out of opportunity, but uh, but polar bears seek that opportunity, and they are crazy powerful. Kyle recently sent me a video of a polar bear jumping off of an iceberg and grabbing a whale calf and killing it. Like, this is a different animal. This is not the bear that we're going to hike up the canyon wall and and get today. Uh, this is a different beast. And to try to take that on with something as, you know, historically ineffective as the nine mil, holy cow, like that is a massive challenge. So overcoming that through, through some complex and innovative geometry is incredible. It's an incredible thing. And, you know, if, if I were a member of that military, I would be sending you donuts on the regular um, for being able to solve this problem. And if people haven't cross-country skied with a rifle on your back or snowmobiled with a rifle on your back, it sucks. There's not a good way to do it. And that's why the biathlon is one of the toughest winter sports out there. So, you know, you're, you're able to crack it. And uh, talk to me a little bit about how this bullet acts once it hits bone. Because we're kind of talking about it hitting, hitting gel, um, hitting, you know, liquid, soft tissues, casting those off to the side. Uh, you know, does it, does it just stop if it hits a bone? We've had uh, really good luck with, uh, with bones. The front of the bullet is kind of a lawn dart. 
And so it has a very defined center to it. And that was purposeful. The, um, if it hits a bone, it typically fractures it because it has, um, it cracks it easier. Instead of having to smash its way through, it can cleave it. I looked back to uh, Civil War surgeons, uh, their toolbox, mm. and some of them use saws, and, uh, but they'd have chisels in there as well. And they had a specific angle on their chisel. And if they had um, a life and death situation and they had to remove a limb you know, more rapidly than a saw, they would sometimes cleave them. And, yeah. and they, but they got a, an angle on there that was able to, uh, to fracture the bone. And so looking at that, we've incorporated some of those angles into, uh, into some of the pistol bullets that we do wow. with, the, with the intent on the bone. But the other part of it, if you turn, if you get a pistol bullet to turn sideways um, or yaw, it really has too much frontal area and it's lost its momentum. It doesn't, it doesn't have the weight behind the center. And so with the Woodsman being a, has a smaller tip than the total diameter, so we're pushing a small portion through it. But with that parabolic curve, we're gaining some speed off the cast off, off the, off the things that it's encountering and then go sideways. And we do that. Um, if you've ever rolled a marble down a ramp and you put a marble next to it on a parabolic curve, you'll get the, the marble on the parabolic curve to come off uh, 30 some percent faster. And, and so really? what we're doing is we're increasing the cast off going sideways with this parabolic curve. And the importance of that is that there's, there's a, um, we talked about the speed in air. And, and so we're going to get m- maybe more esoteric here. And we're going to talk about the speed in fluids when okay. on the terminal. And so I believe you have, you have everything pistol doesn't do a great job at manufacturing a wound and everything rifle, regardless the projectile does a pretty good job manufacturing a wound. And, and the cutoff point for me is um is around 2100 feet per second impact and so if you go back to the african hunting cartridges from over 100 years ago they all were shooting for this this 2100 2150 muzzle velocity and and it it would up the amount of their effectiveness quite a bit with these flatter and round nose projectiles and so we've done study with a um with a company out of texas viper weapons training and, and they're putting a lot of science to what we're doing. And, and so what we found is that um, given this greater speed, you have a shape that is um, shaped like a traditional bullet. You have to be going super fast to, get, to, to beat the elasticity of, of the tissue right. to stretch it too far to create damage. And, and so that's around 2100 and up. With ours, we can go down to about 1,400 feet per second, even less, and have, have that cast off coming the same way sideways, the same speed sideways that, um, that stretches tissue so far that it, it causes damage and it creates a permanent wound rather than, than just a stretch that then collapses back down known as a temporary. And, and so with that, um, our parabolic curve, we gain efficiencies. And, and that's really what we patented was the, was the shape of it that creates this, this lateral cast off. And so with pistols, we've created something that wounds as well as a rifle. And that sounds, um, far-fetched. It does. It does until, until you get into it. And, you know, even though Weston is, is a dear friend and I trust him, 
when he told me about this, I was like, show me the money because I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm just not going to risk it on an animal that, that I care about. Um, I'm not going to risk something that, that doesn't sound right to me because that doesn't pass the sniff test. So it's like, well, here, here's the money. Like here's, here's our ballistic gel side by side. Um, you know, this is a controlled environment. This is what actually happens. Like, all right, that's good enough for me to believe it and try it. Now I need to get to the phase where I try it and then see for myself. And then, you know, everybody got to see it because, you know, I'm an honest guy. So I wrote an article about it. I posted about it. I, you know, I, I think I wrote multiple articles about it. It's, it's just amazing. Um, and I think that you're, you're pushing the limits of, well, the, the current limits of what people believe is possible, of what I believe is possible. And that's very exciting. You know, getting bullets to go, you know, 7,000 feet per second out of a 300 wind mag. Like that, that is beyond the limit of what I thought was possible. And how, how heavy was that bullet, by the way? That design's a 166. A 166. To be uh, to be clear, we haven't wow. um, released that, but even doing it in part, our yeah. side geometry that we so how the how the bullet and the barrel interact um, with a 155 grain bullet in a 300 Win Mag, we're able to hit uh, 3,500 feet per second, which is is fast for a 300 Win Mag. Yeah, and the there should be a detriment there. We should wear the barrel out, and we should have a. Um, a low ballistic coefficient, so non-efficient flight, mm-hmm. and and we're able to have um, really efficient flight. Uh, the BCs aren't the highest, but they're high, and uh, and our muzzle velocities are extremely high. And so, with that, you think you need to have some wear and tear on the gun. But we're using um, we use uh, it's it's considered a brass, but we're using an alloy that has uh, very high lubricity and. Then we we make sure that the uh, friction in the barrel is is removed, and so ours uh, our barrels actually last longer by um, by about three to four times as long. So that's one of the first questions that I get anytime a, a new cartridge comes out that's got some spice to it. It's like, well, what's barrel life? And the answer for almost anything that's got some spice to it is like, oh, eight hundred to twelve hundred rounds. Uh, and a lot of people are really concerned about that. A lot of hunters are concerned about that rather needlessly. Most hunters are, are not going to shoot enough to burn up a barrel. Some do. Talk to me a little bit about what happens with copper versus steel versus brass versus steel. So with, uh, with copper, the easiest way to do this and the, the, the most tried and true method is I actually went to machinists. And machinists have um, have a brass rate, and so they'll buy um, a tool cutter, and the cutter comes with an amount of hours on it. We're going to call it a hundred hours. And so, if you're cutting brass, you have a hundred hours of life in this cutter. Um, when you switch to to most coppers, um, that goes down to 27, mm-hmm. and so you got 27 hours. Well, the barrel is cutting these grooves in the bullet. And it's, it's doing the same thing. The barrel is your tool. And so you have a steel tool uh, cutting brass or cutting copper. The copper is, um, is going to get about a quarter of the life. You know, that's roughly what it's at out of that tool. And so your barrel is going to wear out quicker. 
The other aspect is what we've done with the side of the bullet. We've um, we put a, a series of um, of rings through it. We weren't the first one. They're called driving bands. Our driving bands are smooth and they do not break the slip screen. And so we don't get detrimental effects in the air, but we get a big advantage in the barrel. And even with our copper bullets, we're coming out faster than normal. And the the way that we um, we attribute to that is every time one of these um, one of these uh, lands cuts into the bullet, it pushes a burr the whole length of it. And so what we do is for a very short time we we push a burr, but then it gets relieved, and we push another one, it gets relieved. And so we see um, we'll often see these stair steps in our pressure graphs. And so it's, it's showing that it's actually reducing the pressure, moving the pressure to the right and giving us more, um, more of a, a soft hit rather than a spike. We get big uh, parabolic curves. And so that creates speed. The longer you can keep high pressure on the bullet, the faster it goes. What is brass? So brass is an alloy that is um, typically about 60-40 uh, with copper and zinc. Um, there's going to be trace elements of other things and certain brasses like naval brass um, will have up to 18 to 20 percent lead in, if I remember. There's But there's all kinds of different alloys. Saying, saying that you're using brass is like saying I drive a vehicle. Right. There's, there's a lot of different things. And it, so even cartridge brass is wildly different yeah. properties. Yeah. And so nature pretty much hates metals and loves alloys if you look at how things work and so metals um copper is a little bit um corrosive and um and abrasive on cutting tools and you don't really get that with brass brass chips up really nice um copper is rather gummy and that sticky nature will uh will help to wear barrels out yeah and that because they they'll create a little pothole in the barrel or a little imperfection and you can fill it with copper that has um, that has atomized, and this uh, this copper then will get pulled out of that hole by the next bullet, and it's increased the size of the hole. And that's uh, from what I've seen. That's a lot of where the the alligator hide and these worm trails come from. Yeah. Talking to metallurgists, uh, they kind of they're divided on on how it gets there. Gotcha. We've got it. I don't know if you guys can hear this, but we. We've got a jet boat uh, spinning cookies out here next to us. So if you're hearing that, it's just the sound of Idaho being Idaho. It's just uh, Idaho gasoline. <laughs> um, when you're talking about alligator hide, that's what the inside of a barrel can look like as it starts to wear down. Um, and as these bore scopes uh, become more available and have better connectivity with our other, other electronics. I think a lot of people are starting to look at the inside of their barrels and then see videos of other people's barrels on the internet and starting to understand that, uh, you know, it's not this smooth mirror surface that, that you might have the impression that you're shooting through. I've seen some barrels that look like a plowed cornfield that still shoot relatively accurately. But that tends to not be the case generally, um, mostly. And, you know, a lot of competition shooters, as soon as a barrel starts to show that the groups are expanding, they're getting rid of the thing immediately. And barrels are a wear item. They're like tires on your pickup. 
and it is painful to buy a new set of tires, but oftentimes that new set of tires is more expensive than a new really nice barrel for your rifle. Mm-hmm. So if you start to shoot your rifle barrel out, get a new barrel. Absolutely. Um, not the end of the world. Not the end of the world. And especially compared to the amount of ammunition that you had to spend in order to shoot that barrel out. But- <clears throat> yeah. And, and one thing we've seen even with barrels that are kind of, you know, marginally shot out or on their last life, um, we do really well uh, putting brass in there. Brass yeah. seems to, uh, to kind of coat that alligator skin. Coat a little it a little bit. bit. Yeah. Now, Weston, one thing you told me is that when I, I was switching my Accuracy International um, 300 Wind Mag from, you know, I think I was shooting uh, Hornady ELDXs out of it. I was going to try and shoot some of your rifle ammunition. And you said that I had to get all of the copper out of the barrel. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's important. If somebody's going to shoot a brass bullet, they need to really, really clean their rifle barrel to get all the copper out and use a copper solvent to do so. Yeah, Can you tell me a little bit about why that is? Um, I think I can speak to it some, and Joshua may be able to speak to it more, but it's one peculiarity of the way that, that copper wears a barrel. Mm. Um, it seems to leave behind some residual junk or imperfections, and whereas the brass really cleans that up. Yeah. And and so we need to strip those um, you know, adhesions to the barrel that are copper that are still there um, so we can lay down a smooth seasoning of brass. And, and it's interesting. It seems like brass generally will not shoot well over a copper fouled barrel mm. um you go the back the other way and the copper shoots great okay um, it, it often can improve the function of the rifle interesting so if somebody was wanting to eke a little bit more barrel life out of their gun you know one of the fixes or at least something to try might be to strip all the copper out of it mm-hmm. um, and then shoot a box or two of brass through it and then try copper again just keep shooting brass or just keep shooting brass. I mean, yeah. e- but, either way, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, you guys make some copper projectiles too, mm-hmm. right? Like the the Woodsman is 99.9999999% copper. It's a lot of copper. Yeah, it's mostly <laughs> copper. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and so we've been exper- experimenting with some different copper alloys as well. Yeah. Um, and, and we've managed to find one in particular that, that behaves a little bit more like brass. Okay. Um, it can be a little bit better on barrel life, um, perform terminally more like brass which is a good thing. We, we, our copper bullets are great terminally, um, but our technology really comes alive in, in brass and, and now this, this other copper alloy. I was a great critic of non-toxic ammunition. And in, in some lights, I continue to be. I do not think that, that lead ammunition should be regulated out of usage. Uh, that feels like an infringement. And, you know, there's, there's some things like... 22 long rifle that there's not a valid substitute for at this time. And the first non-toxic ammunition that came out was less lethal straight up. Like I was seeing stuff get wounded on good shot placement and I was very unsettled by that. It was unacceptable to me. And I said then the same thing that I'll say now, which is I'm not going to shoot non-toxic until it's more lethal than what I'm currently Mm -hmm. doing because wounding an animal is a greater tragedy to me than putting trace amounts of, of lead into the environment. Yeah. So the, f- the first animal that I killed with non-toxic was that bull elk with the copper woodsman. Uh, that, no, that's not true because I shot, I shot a buck and then I had a client shoot, um, shoot an elk with a brass before. Brass is, is non-toxic, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And we can't say non-toxic ammunition entirely. 
Um, but as as far as the, the projectile legalities itself. go, oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, just you know, primers contain lead. Sure. Um, Non-lead primers still contain other nasty elements like mercury and right. and, and others. Yeah. Um, there's no free lunch there. Right. Okay, but brass acts really differently from lead and from copper when it hits. And uh, I in in the military when we have, whenever we have a mission, we break things into supporting elements and main elements. So let's say my my whole tank company was going out to uh, to secure some kind of objective. So there's three platoons in the company, red, white, and blue platoons. Um, Red is going to be supporting element one. Blue is going to be supporting element two. So they each have different jobs. One of them might be um, blocking an avenue of approach so that we can we can secure this area without reinforcements coming in. Supporting element number two, uh, their job is to park on uh, some high ground and overwatch the objective area to make sure nobody's getting sassy in there as the main element, which is white platoon, my platoon, main element, every time, thank you very much, we're going to move in and, and season and secure the objective. In hunting, I think of these things very much the same. So one of the supporting elements in this trip is my jet boat, which brought me to this location. One of the supporting elements is my truck, which brought my jet boat to the river. One of the supporting elements is my sweet new Argali tent um, that is keeping the weather off me at night. And, you know, you can go through the list. Like, my boots get me up the hill. My clothes keep me warm. My freaking cryptech keeps me concealed. What about those Crocs? <sighs> joy bees, buddy. <laughs> These are joy bees. Um, dude, I fought the Crocs. I fought the Crocs. I said, I'm not going to wear Crocs. Uh, my dear friend, Tim Butler, uh, said to me one time, be careful what you say you'll never do. Cause then it will hurt less, uh, when you actually do it. <laughs> but fortunately these are not Crocs. These are joy bees, although they look and act very much like Crocs and they're cryptic. So they're cool. Sorry to break a great train of thought. Okay. There. Thank you. You're yeah. not sorry. You love doing that. Uh, anyways, we have all these different supporting elements and the main effort, the main effort in this is a phase of the bullet's life. And we have to go through, we have to go through the internal ballistics as it's heading down, you know, the barrel of this Nosler Model 21 or whatever, you know, we, we have to have that correct. We have to understand the external ballistics. So what's going on as this bullet's traveling through the air so that we can predict accurately where it's going to end up. But all of that is just to get this bullet to meet a bear. And how that bullet acts once it gets there is everything. That is the main effort. That's what all of this is here to do. So let's talk about what happens when brass hits the bear. So the design of our bullet is a hard center and it's made out of brass. And we take this, uh, this cylinder, this cone shaped front, and we flute it like a revolver cylinder. So we're cutting uh, grooves out of this. And then that gets inserted into the, um, into the body of the projectile. And what happens is, uh, is everywhere that those flutes are, when we hit fluid or, um, or tissue at speed, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go into these, uh, these and it's going to hydraulically fracture the rest of the bullet open. And so that's a very forceful thing. A hollow point 
is just a cavity that kind of gets packed full and and it has to, the, the pressure coming into the cavity has to exceed the pressure on the outside. And since bullets are, are a cone shape, there is a pressure on the outside and then it peels back. And so typically that takes place, you know, at, at random depths. Ours, what um, a big advantage is um, there's no, you only maim things if, if all you do is damage the hide. And so we need to pierce that hide rapidly. And so a hard center bullet absolutely does that. It gets through the hide and it stays on track. It keeps, um, it, uh, there's less chance of it yawing off course. Once this, uh, once the bullet is hydraulically fractured, meaning it, it expands at such a rate that it tears the, the brass to pieces. And so the front half of the bullet gets torn to pieces. When brass gets torn like that, it, it is very sharp and it's low density as well. And uh, the low density is actually helps because um, it will help transfer more energy in the right spot. And so when you, when you hit it on the side of the vitals, it's going to pierce through the hide, the muscle, the bone. And when it hits the fluid, which is mostly internal organs, is where most of the fluid is at, it will hydraulically fracture, sending these little shards out and in a, in a cone. And so with lead, typically if you have lead above 1,600 feet per second, it's about a 15-degree cone. And so a very okay. narrow cone. Ours, we've seen them in gel testing where we've gotten this design to go north of, um, of 60 degrees wide and sometimes 75 degrees wide. And so that, that forcing cone in the center has a lot of lateral transfer to it when it breaks. So depending on, on the style of the bullet, we're going to say that we break up about the front half of the bullet, the back half of the bullet stays intact and it tracks through. And so we get a lot of wounding in the vitals and we have a hole in and a hole out. And so there's, there's um, good blood for blood trailing, typically doesn't happen. And the, the amount of, um, of pressure that's created inside there is really great. And what we've seen is, is uh, chest cavities expand a lot to a point that is nearly unbelievable. We have a few of them on video that, um, that confirm this, but we've seen broken shoulders that were never impacted, but the expanse is broken. We've seen broken ribs, um, there was a couple of them that had um, uh, vertebrae broken and so uh, that weren't impacted by the bullet, but the expanse of this. And so that expanse, I believe, takes place because you have, you have um, a rather high velocity round. And when it breaks up like that, those shards are cutting, which is, is really what you want to do. You want to be able to, um, to create multiple wound tracks. And, uh, but it also shuts down because of that low density. They don't travel very far. And so what we found is very, very ethical kills in that not only is the animal killed, but if you, if you get it in the heart, lung, in the vitals there, we've seen that that overpressure often, uh, we believe, makes them faint because they flop to the ground and then they don't wiggle. And a lot of times if an animal uh, hits the ground and they're not, um, they don't kick at all or they don't wiggle at all, um, they're typically wounded. They're going to get up and run. And and we've seen them hit the ground and not move um, enough times. That that's kind of the MO when you hit them in the vitals. Yeah. I am all about killing an animal as quickly as you possibly can. Um, I want them to be enjoying a, a lush bite of spring grass uh, and in the next instant um, being dead. That That's really what I want. What I also don't want is a massive amount of, of bloodshot in the meat 
and you know a lot of stuff that I've got to throw away and with high velocity rounds as you're moving into those shoulders that that can really be a problem and then if you've got lead fragments in that area which you know you more than likely do if you're shooting a lead bullet then you need to be careful about eating that and you, you probably shouldn't eat any of that damaged area because you don't want to be ingesting that lead what type of bloodshot are you guys seeing with with this with this type of hydraulic fracturing it's more akin to an archery wound a cut and so we see less and this is over there's there's always going to be those outliers and there's always going to be those ones that that a bone got struck or something took place but what we see is um is less bloodshot and i believe um, lead creates bloodshot because um, lead is very malleable and at that speed it will actually become round instead of when it fractures it doesn't stay jagged and so going uh, going to that rounder shape it still continues to penetrate but it does it on density and so it's not really using a shape to cut or anything it's using density with that um, it crushes things as it goes and so now we're tearing cells and we're we're pinching off blood vessels which a pinched off blood vessel um, when it's torn it uh, kind of shuts off and it doesn't bleed as well if you cut it it bleeds you know like a garden hose and that's really what we want we want those those very quick um, quick kills and so uh, we use copper uh, we see a little bit uh, less bloodshot with copper bullets typically and that's that's across the the in the entire market every everyone has um a copper bullet barnes was uh kind of the first to maybe perfect that and and i've used barnes for years and we see in our copper designs we see very similar things maybe the added benefit that um that again it's not a hollow point and so when we have that that brass inserted into copper we have no chance of the hollow point actually collapsing in and failing and, and so, but we, and a brass bullet's not for everyone. Um, it can, uh, it cannot be supported by your twist rate. And so if you have an older design or an older gun, uh, it would need to function. And back to your, your comment about lead, lead needs to be on the market. There's, there's an entire era of guns that were, uh, designed around the density of lead and that's what makes them work. And it's all recycled. It is. Yeah. Uh, I think that a lot of people don't know, like I got to, to tour in the Nosler factory um, for the first time this year. And it was amazing. It was so cool. It was so cool. And 100% of the lead that those guys are using is recycled lead. I like that. Uh, I, know that I know that inventing and developing are things that you're really passionate about. And I know that it's coming from a place of wanting to make our law enforcement, our military, and our hunters more effective. But Something else that's really evident to me in talking with you over the last couple of days is that what maybe you're most proud of is the quality of the people that you're working with. Tell me a little bit about kind of the the people of, of G9. You've got 17 employees. Like you're you're not a big shop, but you're doing big things. And it sounds like it's because you know most of the people that you're working with are pretty cool. Yeah, I feel like I'm the I'm the slow kid in the race every day around these guys. Um, every one of them exceeds me. There's, um, there's no place where I'm out in front of the crew. Um, we have Kyle Holmes is, is gifted at, um, at the admin side and he comes behind me. He's, he's, uh, the integrator to my visionary. And so he cleans up all my messes and, and he will translate what I, um, what I want to tell to people. Weston is, uh, is phenomenal at, at getting the, uh, 
the the message out and and I have good intentions but it doesn't translate well I think that goes back to um, I'm highly dyslexic and that was undiagnosed um, until I was 37 and dyslexia is not an inability to read it's that you think differently than the vast majority of the population and so inventing is easy for me because all I have to do is think about it the way I think about it and others haven't and that's what it is but that comes with the penalty of um, of communication and so I don't communicate in a style that everyone else gets and so Weston's able to translate that and get it out to the world and um, and then also comes with the the, um, the amount of people that he knows we have um, we have a, a 21 year old um, loader and she sees things that that I don't and her yeah. her her vision and her tactile responses on these things she does all of our precision loading and she's uh, she's able to do these things because uh, because she has those abilities we have people who are retired law enforcement that truly just care about where the bullets are going um, what's going on with it um, our lead tester is a geologist He's also our lead geologist. Yeah, he is our lead geologist. <laughs> Your lead geologist is a tester? <laughs> he is. <laughs> but um, same type things that they go through. And in mines, they're working with a piezoelectric pressure sensors when they, when they explode things. Yeah, I know what that is. Um, and so the, the same, the same I things. I home. <laughs> <laughs> the same things we measure the pressure in the barrels. They're, they're working with all the same equipment. These things are amazing. They, 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 it's a tiny little sensor that literally uses a, a crystal to translate pressure against the sensor into electric charge that's then decoded and can be output as PSI in a laptop, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just the, it always blows my mind that there are crystals in there. Would you have to <laughs> recharge the crystal under a full moon? No, we just shoot more 10 mil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's like the anti-yoga. I love it. Uh, we're we're about out of time, um, and we need to get after this bear. He's had enough free lunch. Weston, where can people find out more? You can find us at www.g9defense.com. That is G, the number nine, defense with an S. This isn't Europe. Um, and at G9Ammo okay. on Instagram. Cool. And we'll have links to uh, to both of those in the podcast description like normal. Uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend to a friend that, that 10 mil woodsman is a good kit. I think it is a responsible thing for people who are out in the woods these days to, to carry a handgun. There's lots of stuff out here that wants to, wants to do us wrong. Mm-hmm. 10 mil is a great choice. Um, if 10 mil is too much, you might try this because you're going to see about a 30% recoil reduction over the 10 mil that you might be used to shooting. And yeah, I, I like it. I like what you're doing. I don't understand a lot of it. I'm just not smart enough to understand a lot of what you're doing, but I'm experienced enough to be able to see the results and know that something very, very different is occurring. I think you're just getting started. I think you're just getting started and that, that the real power stroke is, is on the near horizon. And I'm pretty excited to see where you guys go next. Absolutely. Thank you both for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you, James. About a decade ago, I launched my old aluminum drift boat onto a remote whitewater river and floated for a couple sunny spring days to meet some friends who were bear hunting downstream. While I made them dinner that evening, one of my buddies came over and showed me a SIG rangefinder. I'd heard of the company and I'd seen their gear while I was a marine, 
but this was the first time I'd seen one of their products built for hunters. The range popped up instantly, and it continued to range everything I put the reticle on as I scanned across the canyon. I'd never seen anything like it on the civilian market, and frankly, not on the military one either. Since that day, SIG has come out with a long list of high-quality and innovative products for hunters, as well as continuing the same for military, law enforcement, and responsible citizens. They have some great training facilities located around the country, too. Check out all that SIG has to offer on their website, sigsour.com. And this episode of the podcast is brought to you by SIG. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.